Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz drummer, composer, and author Art Frank. We caught up with him on January 14, 2021, one month to the day he will release his newest memoir, Chet Baker, The Later Years, Looking for the Light. Art was a dear friend to Chet. He told me that Chet said that Art was the brother he never had. And at the end of the day, Art is part of a dying breed as one of the few authentic bop musicians on the scene today. He worked with Chet for 14 years and also spent some quality time with the likes of Jimmy Heath, Al Cohn, Ted Curson, Sonny Stitt, Phil Moore, and sat in on occasion with the great Charlie Parker, Lee Morgan, Ted Dameron, Dexter Gordon, and Bud Powell. This guy is full of history. He's 88 years old and still full of fire and vigor for life and storytelling. He's got a lot to say about Chet and so much more. Dig the story. So, Art, thanks for taking a minute out for me on Jazz today. I appreciate it, man. Oh, inside, man. You know, the, the, the beauty of your book is there's so many parts of it, as I mentioned already, the humanizing that you've done with Chet, and I think that's the thing. There's a lot of things that have been demonized about him, but at the core of him, the reason why he's moved the world the way he is is because the essence and soul of him comes out in that genuine, genuine way, and you saw that up front. Yeah, I did when I first met him in 1954. Funny thing, when I walked into uh, the, uh, it's called the store of Surreyville Jazz Club in Boston, he came down off the stand, like, hey, Chet, Art Frank, remember me? I saw a bluff, you know, just joking. So he said, no, no, sorry, man. So he started walking out with Carson Smith and the SBA, and uh, I forget the piano player was. And then he turned around and looked at me, and he waved me. I, I pointed myself, you mean me? And he said, he nodded. So we went outside, and we had a talk, and it was very, very nice. And this was at the height of his career. And we we stood along, I forget the name of the we stood along the sidewalk next to the curb, and the cars were going by quite rapidly, and Chet said, you know, if I had been a trumpet player, I would have been like a race driver to race in Le Mans and win the race. I thought, wow, you believe me? I said, yeah. This, that was his first dream to become a race driver. And I'll tell you, if you knew Chet, you wouldn't want to ride with him. He was something else, man. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you. Uh, that's wonderful. You know, the one thing, there's so many stories in here that I love in the book. And the one is you getting ready for him to come over for dinner. And it was almost like, you know, a, a deity was coming over to the house. What was yeah. that like? I mean, did you think that it was going to happen? I mean, what were your thoughts on all that? I got to tell you a story that it should be in the book. I'm pretty sure it is. When I was married to my first wife, uh, we were living in an old cabin in Maine. And it was so viciously cool. And I know all I had was a 45 record of Chet playing the like the lamp as well and imagination. And I told him, I said, one day, one day I'm going to have Chet Baker playing in our living room. And we were flat brooks at that time, living in Maine. And I told him, one day we're going to have Chet Baker playing in my living room. Long story short, I met him in California in a place called Dante's Jazz Club in North Hollywood. I listened to him. And he wasn't playing. He was singing one of these, maybe kept a couple of burps of the horn, nothing really melodic or lyrical. And he left the club, and there was only maybe a handful of people in the club. 
And we walked outside. I walked outside with him. And I said, hey, Chet. He said, yeah. I said, he talked like that. He was very high. Yeah, he said, I said, what are you doing tomorrow? Are you, are you coming back tomorrow night? He said, no. No. I'm just all right for one night just to make some money, put food on the table for my wife and kids. I said, what are you doing tomorrow night? He says, well, nothing, man. I said, you have children? He said, yeah. I said, why don't you come over to my house tomorrow with your wife and children have dinner with me and my wife and three kids. And he looked at me like, a lot of time I thought I had insulted him. He says, well, so I gave him my card. And he said, well, I said, I'll call tomorrow. I never thought he'd call. Anyway, the next following day, my wife kept everyone else off the telephone in case he called. And I'm painting a house someplace in Beverly Hills for, for, I forget who it was, some actor. Anyway, she called me and said, Chet Baker's calling and he's coming tonight. Well, Dick Disman, I don't think we had more than 12 or 13 dollars together. I went to a local store and bought the best steak I could, and an apple pie and ice cream, and a potato, the whole bit. So he comes that night at about 7 o'clock, and he just has his wife, Carol, with him, and she was a beautiful, beautiful black-headed lady, and uh, peach and cream, like, you know, they came in the house. And we took off from there, and we had dinner. We went to the next room, the big room, and I said, did you bring your trip? with your chest. He said, yeah. So he went out in the car, and he comes in, and he has a fuglehorn wrapped in a beautiful blue towel. Didn't even have a case. So he takes it out, and I said, do you mind if I throw this yet? He said, no. And he started to play, and he couldn't play too much. He said, play maybe. I knew, I love you. So, and he started to play. All of a sudden, he rips his long passage off, and then he stopped. He was in pain in his mouth. You could see he had been beaten up seven months, eight months earlier than that. And he had suffered permanent trigeminal nerve damage on both sides of his jaw and mouth. So that he lost his armor so that he, when he played, it would hurt. Because he had four of his other front teeth knocked out. And doctors, a neurologist told that he would never play again. Well, he said, wow. I don't believe that, man. I'm going to find some way to play. So for the next couple of months, five, six, seven months, he was at my house. I'd go to his house and down to a beach. He'd come to my house in Culver City. I bought him a frugal horn because he had hawked his frugal horn. I hawked the school. I said, I'll buy this play except with a provision that you promised me you'll, you'll practice. He said, I will, man, I will. And he did. And over five, six, seven, eight months, Joe, he was coming. He couldn't play a whole whole tune. But I'll tell you something, after seven, eight, nine months, he started to play I Love You. And it was the most magnificent, beautiful, lyrical stomp I have ever heard in my life. I mean, I bring him in his head just thinking what that man went through just to learn how to play again. I mean, he couldn't play at all. He had to relearn all over again to play that trumpet. I'm telling you something. He developed a sound so unique, so whisper soft, yet it was, he said he was looking for a special sound, and he found it. It was like, if you listen to him closely, he had the ability to put the air coming out of the horn just before the sound. Check that. You hear the air just before, like, it's unique. The most identical sound there is in trumpet, man. Believe me. Absolutely. I believe it. You know, what I got from the book, too, is, is that he, he always looked out for you. No matter what was going on, I remember that scene in the barbershop in L.A. <laughs> it's, it's like he always looked out for you. No matter what happened or no matter what might have been going on, there yeah. was no one that was going to mess with you. Did you always feel like he was kind of a guardian angel? 
Well, I, I, I do, but I also thought I was his guardian angel because, you know, everyone left him. He was alone. Even all the musicians that he recorded with, played with, the record company slowed down. Nobody, I'm serious, no one wanted a thing to do with Chet. The dead man, as far as they were concerned. That's why I took, I had, I was, had an acting career as well as being a jazz musician. I decided to give the acting up to work with Chet to get him back, get his horn back, get his mouth back. And it worked, man, over a period of several years. He was back on top. What, what is it about, you know, everybody hears the word Chet Baker. We know his music. It's beautiful. He's a legend. But you, you're, you were his friend. You saw this guy. and You have great feelings. You have two books. What is it about Chet that is the most alluring, the most magnanimous thing about Chet that you, you, you can dispense? Well, I would say um, is honesty. He, like, I remember seeing something. I'll never forget. He said most people like the BS. He could not stand man's humanity to a fellow man. He could not understand that. And there was a there was a sadness about Chet that was in his face always and until he smiled, which he really did. I mean, rarely did because a lot of people were always around him. They only wanted to be around him because of who he was, but not because of what they could help him to do. When I met him, he knew that I was honest. Because I was broke like he was. He came, he came into my house. I don't know if he thought I was going to have a nice big mansion, but that wasn't. It was a two-bedroom house. Small little place in Culver City. He walked in with his beautiful wife, sat down, no ears. He looked around. I, could tell, I know what he was thinking. Well, this guy's nothing, man. He's got nothing to help me with, you know. That's what I thought he was thinking. Well, it was quite the opposite, man. He came over and actually hugged me and sat down. And yeah. I just knew right there, this guy was totally sincere. This guy was, I hate to use this word, hungry. He was hungry for, 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 for truth. Some of them love him for who he was, not for what he could do as far as playing trumpet or whatever. He, uh, I, that's the way, listen, I was an unschooled musician. I still can't read a note, but I, I've written over 70 tunes. And I worked with Chet. I played with Bird. I played with a lot of cats. I don't have to prove it. It's, it's history. But anyway... Chet had a had a sense about him. He, 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 a funniest of pathos, and you could hear it in every ballad he played. And even doing up tempo tunes, you could hear that little hint of sadness and melancholy. Chet was our only child. He had no brothers or sisters. He called me the he called me the only brother he ever had. The next book that's coming out, you obviously have a lot to say about him. Can you give me kind of a preview of of, of what well, that? Going well, yeah, the yeah. The, the, the first book, the, the first book, he came to live with us in Maine. I told you that later on. I get married again, and uh, we were living in Trumbull, Connecticut. And uh, he contacted me, and we got together. And I went in and played with him at a place called uh, like this pub. And we play anyway. He is going to Calgary to do a gig, and he come in the phone from Calgary to. And I'm awful tired, all right. I said, what? Come, come live with us and, you know, me and Lisa and your parents. And he said, well, I don't want to go unannounced. I, went, I asked Lisa's mom and father. And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely come in. So we lived with us in Trumbull, Connecticut, which we had access to New York City, all the clubs in New Jersey or Maine or, you know, the Massachusetts where we play, you know. And we uh, we just, we redeveloped our friendship. I get news. Uh, the second book, it deals with... Uh, 
things after and, and reveals his death and beyond the death and how I decided to retire from playing. And so his wife called me, his widow called me and said, oh, you should do a tribute to Chet, even though he loves it. So I got guys like Dave Liebman and helped me on the saxophone and uh, the great Phil Marquis and I got Dennis Irwin on bass and myself and a young trumpet player named Billy Downton. And we did that tribute to Chet Baker, always looking for the light. That's the name of the album, looking for the light. And ironically, yeah. that's the name of the, that's the title of the second book, Chet Baker, always looking for the light, because I was so joked. We went down to Santa Monica Beach, and I was always talking about the Spirit of God, you know, Jesus Christ. And he, he said, well, I don't believe in God the way you do, I. He said, you know, uh, I play, I believe I'm put on earth just for a little while, and then that's it. So I kept talking about the Lord and the light of the Lord. And that's why I think the second book, the publisher decided to name the book, the second book, Chet Baker, Always Looking for the Light. Because he was. You know, he was a, he was a, he was a I, I can't, he was a, just a, if, once you get inside past the horn and play past the, the phoniness of what man has done, he was a real true man. I mean, he would never lie to me, he would never take advantage of me. He was just a pure cat, man. Speaking of seeing the light, when did all this jazz begin for you? When did you see the jazz light? How did this become your life? It's funny. I was, uh, see, I was, I had my first gig. I was 16 years old. I, I, I hit like the New York City. So a lot of people don't believe it, but it's a fact. Shut me so I sat with Charlie Parker when I was 16. It's a place called the Royal Roost in New York City on Broadway way back in 19, late, late 48. I was about 16 years old. I had it then. I never, I never knew I was going to go into, into it. And, you know, I, I didn't have any idea of going to become a musician. But it just happened. I gave it up for a while. I drove cab for about six or seven years. I'd play on the side, but never looking until I saw Chet. And he, uh, I got him a gig, a comeback gig in Hollywood, the Melody Room. He had his choice of any drummer in L.A., from Stelly Man, so on and so forth. But he chose me. I said, hey, Chet. Don't don't hire me because you know you, you owe me something. He says no, no, no. He said I love your playing, man. I, I love the way you play. So he heard me playing in one little club, and he hired me to do the comeback gig with him in Hollywood at the sun, at the uh, on Sunset Sunset Boulevard, and the name of the place was called the Melody. Right, movie. it was packed with stars when they said they said they could come back. I'm telling you, Joe, when you walked in that club, it was packed with stars. Unbelievable, and it was small. It was a walk. It was a walk joint. It's now known as the Viper Room, owned by some actor. What's his name? Uh, Depp, Johnny Depp. Yeah. So the Melody Room now known as the Viper Room. But yeah. anyway, Herb Alpert was there, and and uh, yeah, oh God, I can I can name the people. I can get a turn across the street working. They come in the club a lot every night. They be in after do their act. They come in. Yeah, Dion, the Dion Walker's husband, Bill, Bill Elliott, come in. Frankie Elron, uh, Herb Alpert, oh, no, so many other people. A couple of actors I can't do the name. They came in. I mean, Chet was so well-loved. What historically has been the most satisfying thing about waking up every day and being a musician? What do you love the best about it? Playing with Chet Baker. <laughs> <laughs> right? Wonderful. I mean, tomorrow, yeah. you, don't get, you don't get any better than that, baby. No, no, no. I mean, I've played with a lot of cats in my life. I was standing without Pepper Bird. Yeah, just about everybody. Bud Powell and Brother Richie Powell. Oh, yeah, so many people. But there was something about Chet that was like, I remember walking into the club with him. Oh, can we help you, Mr. Baker? Can you help me? Hey, Mr. Frank, you want something? 
like you were some kind of royalty. I have fans now in Italy, Palestine, Israel, uh, Brazil, I mean, because I I was with Chet Baker. They think I'm some kind of god. I mean, I've been offered to fly over to Italy with a room the whole bit. Like, hey, I can't now. You know, I'm going on 88 years old. You know, we, we all have a very fond image of Chet. How do you want the world to remember you? How do you want the jazz world to remember what you've done? It doesn't matter, Joe. I mean, I think what matters is I have faith in God and Jesus Christ. That's one of the things. But as far as being remembered, God helped other people out. That's the guy who helped, you know, cared about helping other people out, the poor, in, you know, in the, Let me tell you a quick story in the second book. I don't know if I'm first Chet Baker or not. And my wife, Lisa, were going to the... Uh, Vanguard, go to Vanguard to see, you know, uh, El Cone. No, I'm sorry, Zoot Sims. And while we're down there, we're on the way, we decided, we decided to walk here. There was only about 18 walk. And it was about, just before winter, and there was these people hanging around a, a barrel fire. You know what a barrel fire is, don't you? Yeah. It's yeah. an open valley, you throw paper and stuff. And anyway, there was this one black guy who had just a t-shirt on, you know, it was, not a teacher, but you know, not free. And he was shivering. So Chet had on a coat, and he walked in. He said, hey, man, he took the coat off. He said, try this, man. The guy pulled on, he said, oh, it feels good. He says, keep it, man. And we started walking off. The guy couldn't believe it. And I looked at a little anecdote. Where Chet lived, he had a small apartment. And people would come in. I went from using a bathroom one time, and there was a black guy, and they taking a shower. I said, you know, you know who that is out there? He said, no, who's that? I said, that's Baker. He said, I mean, the trouble for that. He couldn't believe it. Shet would let people off the street come in and take a shower and give them something to eat. I mean, he was a giving man. One quick story in Hollywood, we were going down Sunset Boulevard. We went to a place on Denny's on Sunset, and there was an old guy digging in the, in the wastebasket outside for food. And Shet said, look at that cat, man. He said, he goes outside... Take the money out, bring them in, sit down with, sit down with up, and, and buys them a meal. Now this is no via, This is true, Joe. This kind of a cat. Chet was. He was a giving man. Truthfully. Yeah. So as this book gets ready to come out here in February, right now you have the chance to say to people that are thinking about Chet, say something to them about buying this book. Why should someone get this book? What are they gonna What are they gonna get out of your new book? Well, if you go to the first book. Just something the world never knew about Chet. <laughs> humanity, a husband and a wife, and a three children, and it's friendship to me. I, uh, the second book takes off where the first one leaves off, and it becomes a little more moving. Total relationship we had, getting together. You know, my wife, Lisa, was also a trumpet player. She was a running trumpet player, and Chet would take his trumpet player, his trumpet, and show her how to do little, little cute little secrets. And there's uh, one thing he told her, you take a deep breath in, hold it, and you take another breath on top of the hole, it's almost so, so close. He showed this to her, and you want to hear the tone she has now, Joe. I mean, uh, she's not a professional drummer player, but she took that Chet Baker tone. So did her son, Paul. When Paul was living with us, Chet's son, she was teaching him. He was about 20 years old. She was teaching him how to play against Chet's records. We get down, put that record on, and play, and... And then he started to sound like Chet. And all, all of a sudden, for some reason, he gave it up. I don't know. I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. I don't understand it. 
But as far as why they could buy it, it's because it talks about the man behind the horn. The love of the man, his, 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 his strengths, his weaknesses, which he did have. He did have weaknesses, you know, the drug addiction. And he, a lot of people have drug addiction. And we, a lot of people have addiction, like smoking, drinking, sex, whatever. I told him one time, I said, take a, take a bow, man. You've, been, you've brought so much pleasure to people through your music and your singing. And he's, you know, he just, uh, it's hard to say, Joe, without sounding foolish. I love the guy, man. He loved me, and we just, I think why we get along so good together, I think one guy was saying, some critic in New York City, Pete Torrey, was saying, watching you and Chet Blake is like watching a championship tennis match. One ball, I mean, one serves the other volleys. And that's what he said about me and Chet, playing together. Because I... I don't mean them. I never took a lesson. I still don't practice. I mean, if you have it, you don't need practice. It's a gift of God. So what's that? That's why we get along so well together. Incidentally, if you go on YouTube and put down Chet Baker and then me, my name, put my name first, Art Frank and Chet Baker, you'll see a whole lot of stuff you'll be able to hear about me Chet and I playing together. What, what were some of the songs that you loved playing? Were there specific songs that you just looked forward to playing with them? Yeah, one he loved, the favorite now, all time favorite ballads is thing called I Waited for You by Joe Fuller. That was his all time favorite ballads. So he had a lot, a lot of other ones, but that was the one he chose to play all the time. And also, uh, Up Temple, uh, everyone. He, I wouldn't say, he, well, he also, uh, believe it or not, looked for the silver lining. I remember we did the Schaefer Jazz All Star Festival in 1975 in Central Park, New York. Everybody was there. Hank Crawford, Grover Washington, and Cubit Laws, I mean, Ron Carr, everyone's there. So anyway, I was, was me with Chet, Harold Danko on piano, Cameron Brown on bass, Chet Baker on trumpet, myself on drums, and we played Janine, you know, anyway. Then he played a couple of other tunes like Fairweather, and then all of a sudden he was done, going to play another one, and it's, the crowd got up and said, they started yelling, silver lining, silver lining. It was a thing that Chet did, one of his favorites. He vocalized it, you know. But his all-time favorite ballad along with I Waited For You was my, my Funny Valentine. Wow. My Funny Valentine. Art, hey, man, this has been a huge pleasure. I'm so glad that I've read the book. I'm so glad that you put Chet in such a great light. And it, it's wonderful, man. And I appreciate what you've done for the world. Right. And one, one more thing I'll tell you. Uh, I was I was inducted into the same jazz hall of fame that Chet was, and and, and uh, it was just a, a beautiful thing. So Chet and I are still linked together with both in the jazz hall of fame. So, anyway, the second book is coming up Valentine's Day, two thousand twenty-one. God bless you, man. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview. Where we give you a bit of insight into the finest cats in Los Angeles, Maine, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Art for being a jazz treasure. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.